Welcome back. Here we are, Business of Film, a crafttruck.com podcast. My name's Jesse Eichmann, and this is episode number nine. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is going to be our Christmas special episode. Kind of cool. And I'm pretty stoked because we are here today with Brian Udovich. Brian is one of those guys that just, you know, he gets back to basics and reminds you how to be in this crazy business and stay in this business. He's made six films in the last eight years, and there's something to be said for consistency. So I'm pretty excited about this, uh, about sharing this podcast with you. It was a ton of fun. We didn't even have time to, to get into any of the specific films that he produced or has produced, uh, because we spent so much time just talking about strategy. And I, you know, it is just so applicable to any anyone, whether you're a first timer, whether you're you know you've made two or three films before. Uh, it's just, it's awesome to be reminded of the stuff that works and why it works. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping before we dive into this particular podcast. Uh, we have separated the business of film stream or feed, uh, so it's got its own home now, the business of film podcast, which you can find on iTunes. And so if you happen to be listening to this on the crafttruck.com feed, the feed that has been going for the last year, uh, please hop on over to iTunes and sign up directly for Business of Film if that's the podcast that uh, you only want to receive. And if you want to continue to receive all of our uncut uh, interviews with cinematographers and editors, then just stay here. But just so you know, the Business of Film podcast, as it's currently coming to you, uh, that's going to stop in a couple episodes. Right now, we're simulcasting. Yay! Kind of exciting. But that's going to stop. So Business of Film is going to have its own feed. And... Craft Truck Uncut will continue here on this feed if that's where you're listening to this. Anyway, enough of that. Enjoy the show and happy holidays to everybody. Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Can you take a minute, give us a little bit of history background? Who is Brian Udovich? Sure. And really quick, I, uh, I have no delusions that you actually probably do know who I am, but I will give you a quick uh, preamble here. Uh, my name is Brian Yudovich. I'm an uh, independent film producer here in Los Angeles. I am partnered up with a fellow named Justin Dupree. Uh, we together have a film company called Rough and Tumble Films. That is an uh, independent financing and production company uh, here in Los Angeles. We are actually located in Howard Hughes's old uh, production office, and it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. You feel like you're making pictures when you're here. That's uh, awesome. That, that's just yeah. awesome. I love those old buildings in Los Angeles. You just you don't get that where we are, obviously Toronto. Well, but I, I got to say, this is really quick. The, there's not a lot of it here either. This was just kind of an accident that we found this uh, through a film archivist friend of mine. But this is a building that was built in 1919. It's an Art Deco building. That feels like it has some history, which Los Angeles feels, you know, somewhat modern. But, you know, it's fun. I'm from Chicago, so it's nice to have an Art Deco steel and stone building that's, you know, not the most convenient building for modern day standards, but it's just built out of a lot of concrete and steel and has like 18 or 19 bank vaults in it. So you can't, you come from Chicago. When did you move to Los Angeles and was it specifically to move for the film business? No, actually, my background is in business and computer science. I uh, I grew up outside of Chicago in a, uh, I guess, infamous prison town of Joliet, Illinois, uh, kind of most famous for, uh, I guess, Jake, uh, Joliet Jake of the Blues Brothers. 
And uh, film is probably as far away as anything as you can think of when you grow up in that town. Uh, very proud of it. Uh, I'm of Slovenian descent, and you know a lot of Slovenians, Italians, Polish, all kind of came into the Chicagoland area in the 30s and 40s, and I'm a descendant of all that. Uh, I actually studied business and computer science in undergrad at Wesleyan in Bloomington, Illinois, uh, and went out to work for a French consulting firm. I worked uh, in telecommunications in Silicon Valley and basically every major city in the United States over a four- or five-year span. And what was happening was I was always obsessed with film just from a fan standpoint. And this is probably in the late 90s when there was still a lot of money in technology. And it was one of those things I just studied on the side. I was obsessed with George Miller and The Road Warrior. I was obsessed with uh, James McTiernan and his films in the 80s. I was a big Predator fan. Uh, I was a huge – it all started actually with Wrath of Khan is I used to read voraciously on the road. And I stopped and read a script of the Wrath of Khan one night in a Borders in Palo Alto. And I had never read a script before, and it blew my mind that you could burn through something so quick and be entertained, and it was a different writing stand or writing method. And I just kind of dove into film, and I took a hiatus from my job just to recharge my batteries. It was just so I could you know, basically talk about Citizen Kane at parties. Uh, and as soon as I started studying it, I was obsessed, and I kind of you know, burned my ships, and I wasn't going back into technology. So how did you, what was your entry into the film business? Like, how did you get started when you made that decision, I'm going to be in the film business, I want to make movies, how did you get going? Yeah, where, where this basically came from is, I, like I said, I, I took a leave from my job, it was a paid leave, it was nice because this is back when there was a lot of money back in this world for that kind of stuff, and technology companies were very accommodating to you to do something unorthodox to recharge your batteries. And literally, I just thought it was going to be a six-month break just to recharge my batteries, and I would be back at it. Uh, what I did was I had a friend who had taken a promotion to move to Denver, Colorado. He asked me to move there with him. Uh, I gave him the caveat that the only reason I would move there is if he found something right out of like MTV's real world, and he found a church that had been renovated into giant lofts. And we went there, and I was just going to go hang out and ski for a winter, and I was going to start auditing classes at the uh, Colorado Film School just as kind of a lark. And when I went there, I realized that auditing and taking the classes was exactly the same price. So I said, screw it. And I paid for 28 hours worth of classes in one semester, just because I figured this is the only time I would ever get to do this. And it truly was like a film theory class the second day when they were breaking down Citizen Kane that I was like, you know, fuck this, man. This is what I want to do with a living. I studied there and I had some professors there that encouraged me that you know, they're like, you're good at this. You should do this. And I said, well, I've, I've got this great job. And they're like, well, you should quit your great job. <laughs> like you should, you should go to LA and you should get involved in the business. And, uh, one of them went to USC, one of them went to UCLA and they both recommended I look at AFI and I petitioned AFI. I didn't think I stood a chance in hell of getting into AFI, uh, cause you're supposed to have five years of industry experience, but I pitched them everything we were doing in Silicon Valley to kind of bring an unorthodox approach to the produ uh, to producing, and they were intrigued by it, and they let me in the class. And so I attended AFI for grad school, had to tell my job I wasn't coming back, and uh, wound up being the commencement speaker of my class at AFI and had a thesis that wound up winning an Emmy. So it was a whirlwind, basically three or four years of going from you know technology and telecommunications to all of a sudden being a film producer. 
And what was your first film that you can, I guess, not not short film, but short film, but first sure. feature film that you can, or that you did hold on your shoulders as being the, you know, that 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 proud first achievement. Can, can yeah. you talk about that that experience for us? A hundred percent. What what happened was, in in grad school, uh, you have a thesis film that you had to do at AFI, and you also had as a producer. You had to have a script that you optioned or you created, and you had to put together a business plan and all of that kind of jazz. And myself and another producer there at AFI uh, teamed up uh, named Chad Feehan, and we developed a script with a writer named Jacob Foreman and a production designer named Tom Hammock. It was called All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, and that was a script that we built at uh, AFI. And we had classmates. We had a, a classmate named Jonathan Levine, who uh, was a great director, and he came on to direct the film, Darren Janay to shoot it. And all these people have, you know, Jonathan Levine's gone on. He and I did the Wackness together, but he went on to do 50-50 and Warm Bodies. We were lucky enough to be in a really good class at AFI, and uh, we kind of came out with this business plan and a script and everything ready to go. And we teamed up with these guys who had just come out of USC. Uh, at the time, they were called Clipper. They're currently called Occupant Films. They had financing to go do it, and we kind of had a nice, beautiful marriage. And All the Boys Love Mandy Lane was our first feature to go out there, completed, and we wound up taking it to the Toronto Film Festival in 2006. Now, I want to talk about All the Boys Love Mandy Lane and and where that led to. But before we do, I want to hit on two things with you, just because you brought it up, and I I find it interesting. Um, Just A, to ask the question, but B, because you went through it to get your perspective on both these things. Uh, the first is you said you made a business plan. So the first question is, you know, what do you feel is the value of a business plan when putting a film together today? And the second question is straight up, what is the value of film school to you? And was that a positive experience? And would you recommend that to others? Uh, yeah, I guess it, it just depends on who you are, you know, what your network is and everything. I guess let me start with the second question for or the second one first in is film school worth it? And I guess I will give it from my perspective, and I guess this is a little bit of a jock perspective in that I played football all the way through college. And I remember when I started college, I came in as a freshman, I was on the football team, and we had to show up three weeks before anyone else did at the school to do what they call two-a-days, where you're doing two practices a day. But the first day on campus, when all the other freshmen came in and everybody didn't know anyone, I walked in the first day of college already having a hundred, uh, whatever, 120 friends. I already had been spent three weeks bashing heads with these guys, and I walked around campus already having kind of a group that I was tight with and had friends, and they invited me to things, and you felt connected at least with a network before you even started school. Film school, to me, if you pick the correct ones, uh, is the same kind of thing in the film industry. I was coming from, you know, I am a Slovenian kid from Joliet, Illinois. I have no blood ties out here. There's no Joliet connection out here. There's no Illinois Wesleyan connection here in the industry. I had nothing. And I think two and a half years at, you know, a preeminent film school like AFI is almost the equivalent of I lost you. We lost Brian. Okay, looks like we're going to have to do some editing in this one. Here we are. Hello? That that boring, Jesse? 
I don't. I, I didn't click out on you. I, I think you hung up on me. <laughs> oh, okay, I didn't touch anything. We just lost our connection somehow. <laughs> All right. Do you want me to start? Do you want me to start over on that question, or just keep going? I think you can just keep going. Um, and oddly enough, I think my 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 recording software has not stopped. So we're we're actually still recording. So they're they're going to get that that weird pause in the middle, and we're just going to keep on rolling here. Maybe I'll edit it out afterwards. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see perfect. how bad it sounds. I, I, so, I did my best radio, you know, filler thing going on there. It was great. But anyway, awesome. No, really quick, and just to reemphasize, I think what's great about the the film school aspect was coming into the industry with a hundred friends, coming in with people that were in all different disciplines, that had all different backgrounds, that might have known certain things that you didn't, and what they really preach at AFI is collaboration, and that's what we needed. You know, when we made this film, it's just they're just too daunting to do by yourself. You know, it was myself and another producer. We had a director, a cinematographer, a production designer, you know, an editor, a screenwriter, and all these people were those professions. It wasn't, oh, I have a guy who kind of knows cameras. He'll be our cinematographer. No, it was somebody who went there to be a master of cinematography, and this is what they wanted to do. And so you kind of come out with this, this you know, an A-team of people to kind of team up with. And I thought that was invaluable, and I, I you know... We had no connections to get into the Toronto Film Festival. We made a film that I thought was solid enough to kind of cut through any politics or BS to be noticed by a programmer and to get us, you know, our start in this industry. And that's kind of what got it. And then the second half there. Yeah, the second half is the business plan. And my God, I think that this applies to everything in life. I mean, I, this is an art form and, you know, there's only so much you can do to quantify it. But you definitely need to understand what the ball game is that you're getting involved in. You have to understand the parameters and the rules. When you're putting together a business plan, you should be looking at trends. Like, what is, you know, it is at the end of the end, and I hate the old, like, well, it's called show business, you know, it, but it is. It's business. You're trying to make something for a dollar and sell it for two, you know, and if you don't understand the value of what you're making, then you just, you know, you're buying a lottery ticket then. You know, you better understand, you know, I, I interned over at uh, Icon, which is uh, Mel Gibson's company. And he has a business partner named Bruce Davies. And Bruce, uh, you know, was Mel's accountant and became his business partner and is an unbelievably razor-sharp businessman. But, you know, he had, he had these little phrases I thought were great. And one day he said, Braun, every movie's profitable as long as you do it for the right price. And, you know, that sounds so basic, but it's so true. You know, if you make Mandy Lane at a certain variable, it's well worth making. If you don't, then it's not worth making. And, you know, that's business. And that's making a business plan. And the only way to actually have that business plan is to do research. You have to go find out what were movies actually made for? What were they bought for? You know, did those people have enough? You know, is your overhead small enough to actually make this worthwhile? Who buys these genres? Who are the distributors that buy these things? What is your ability to sell this product because they're they're expensive, man. It's interesting. You're you're actually answering my uh, my question as as I'm about to ask it, which is how do you go about valuing a movie? I mean, and can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because it's actually very interesting, even the questions that you've asked. But certainly, I mean, skipping forward to where you are right now uh, in you know in in your life cycle as a producer, how do you go about thinking about valuing a product? Yeah, I think everything in this world you have to evaluate and you have to be harsh on on whether you should do it or you shouldn't do it. You know, I would say you have to look, you know, 
I will take myself, for example. I have, you know, I am married. I have a three-year-old daughter and I have a nine-week-old son at this point. When I make decisions about what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it, you have to weigh pros and cons and you have to weigh, okay, what am I giving up for these things? Films are exactly the same way. You might have someone who comes to you with a passion project that you are just like, this is amazing. But the, at the end of the day, you have to figure out how to sell it. I'll give a great, in this, look, this is not learned by me just reading a book. This is me getting burned on things. Uh, we have a, a, you know, I've done six feature films in the last eight years. One of the films I'm most proud of was directed by a fellow named Daniel Stamm, who went on to direct The Last Exorcism. Uh, really great artist. He uh, directed a film that was called A Necessary Death. You know, A space necessary space death. It's a brilliant film. It's a mock documentary about a guy who goes out on Craigslist as a filmmaker and says, hey, are you going to commit suicide? If you're thinking about it, let me document it. I really want to follow along. And the repercussions of that, it really gets into this beautiful film about the moral dilemma of the filmmaker and the artist. I know that sounds crazy, but it's really good. And we took it to South by Southwest for its world premiere. It played all over the world. It got him The Last Exorcism as a film. But at the end of the day, no distributor wanted to touch it because it was dealing with suicide. And that was something that I didn't put in, into my algebraic equation on, is it worth it to do this? And then, you know, at the end of the day, like, look, the movie cost almost nothing, so it was worth it just for the exposure and to make a good film. But if you're making a movie at a half a million dollars or a million dollars or five million dollars, you know, that could bankrupt a person. And this is kind of the only industry where people throw around a term like a half a million dollars as if it's jump change. You know, if I go back to Joliet or if I go anywhere in America and I tell somebody I need a half a million dollars, it's a half a fucking million dollars. That's a lot of money, you know. Oh, most people cannot afford to ever even remotely come close to losing that. And, you, you know, you would never build a house without some sort of proof that, hey, you know what, this is a place we can build this house. We have the blueprints to do it. We have an architect who actually knows what they're doing. We have a builder who knows what they're doing. You have to do the same due diligence in film, but unfortunately, it's just a sexier kind of industry to be in, so people kind of want to wing it because you want that romantic, you know, I'm following my passion as an artist, and you've got to be 50-50 on, okay, I'm smart on doing this, and I'm creative on doing this, even if that sounds unromantic. No, I just love, I love the analogy, both to real estate and to the, you know, the, the amount of money, because it's so true, you, you, you know, you throw around you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, like, like it's nothing. And it, and, yeah. it's just, and that's just this business. And, and for some reason that's okay. And that's well, fine. I, I will tell you this. We, uh, we went out to New York and, uh, made the whackness and I remember coming home and that was, you know, a $5 million film. I remember coming home and I went over to one of the major, uh, agencies here and I sat down with this agent and I sat down and I was so proud of myself. We had, you know, giant cranes and we had shut down parts of Times Square and like this is more money I had ever had to play with. And I sat down at his desk and he goes, Hey, how'd your little movie go? And I was like, Oh wow. Like I forget about this, that you know, this is seen as chump change in most of this aspects of this uh business. But to me, five million dollars is, you know, more money than I ever thought that I would see in my entire life combined. You know, but this gets thrown at an independent film that you hope gets into Sundance and hope sells to a distributor. 
you know. And, and of course, you're the guy that has to write half a million dollars worth of checks. So how did right. that? Right. Oh, it's it's you know you're responsible to a financier that you know this person is entrusting you with this money, and you have to sit there at the end of the day and say this is take away the whole aspect of red carpets and all that other stuff. It's a business proposition, you know. If somebody came to me and said, "Hey, I want you to run a factory that makes steel chairs," well, you better know what a steel chair costs and how you're going to make them, and that there's someone at the other end who's going to buy this many steel chairs. You know, like it's unsexy, but it's a business, and you need to make sure that you have a game plan going into this, being okay. This makes sense. So, you know, it's just not fun. <laughs> That's why I think, look, I, I'm wired to be a producer. Like, I couldn't direct my way out of a paper bag, and God bless my friends who are great at it. Like, if I had a script that just said, you know, and the actor cries, I would just hand the script to the actor. I'd be like, all right, it says cry, so I'm going to, you know, turn on the camera here. Like, I'm just not wired to do that. But, you know, I'm wired to kind of get a team together who has potential and to kick them in the ass and, you know, have them live up to that potential. I know how to recognize great art. And I try to enable artists to get to that level, you know, and you want to make, you know, our entire purpose is rough and tumble is we like character driven genre films, you know, like I would love to have been the producer of let the right one in, you know what I'm saying? Where you're making something that's touching and moving and something that really is a beautiful film and it's wrapped in something entertaining and cool. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny you should say let the right one in because uh, I, I literally just saw that movie the other day for the first time. And, and, and you know, obviously terrible of me that it's taken this long to see it. No. I mean, there's, there's so many movies that I still need to catch up on. Oddly enough, I'm the exact inverse of you. You have a boy who's n- nine months old and a girl who's three years old. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, the, I'm the exact opposite of you right now. So, find, <laughs> so, so trying to find time to do anything is always a challenge. So, it, And uh, let me – can I say this, Jesse? Yeah, yeah. This is also the other thing. Trying to stay up on film is like drinking from a fire hose. Like there's this there's this sense of embarrassment out here on that if you haven't seen every single movie on AFI's top 100 movies that somehow, you know, you're a charlatan or something like that. It's impossible to keep on up on this. Like what you have to do is you have to have passion. You know what I'm saying? What you have to do is you have to love cinema. And in all honesty, you know, Werner Herzog, we do a Sunday night screening series at AFI that, you know, we've played almost 200 films at AFI. Werner Herzog popped in one night to see a Russian film that we were playing. And he came up, he's like, hello, Werner Herzog. I'm like, of course you are, sir. He's like, I watch three movies a year, and this is one of the three movies I would like to watch. And pardon the really bad Herzog impression, but like, like Herzog watches three movies a year. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, but he reads a million books and really lives life and tries to meet people in crazy places. And, you know, you don't, I don't know. I always, I'm always amazed and I'm a cinephile and I watch as much as I can. You'll never catch up on everything. You know, you'll never be in on everything. So it's, you know, it's, it's, do you want to just be moved by movies is all I care about. I actually, all I care about is you doing more Werner Herzog impressions because that's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so let me ask you this. I, you, as you said before, you have six movies under your belt in the last eight years. You know, the, the, yeah. thing, the thing that comes to my mind is just consistency. And to be consistent in this business is just ridiculously difficult. So, you know, what's, what's your secret sauce? I mean, spill, spill your beans. I want to know how are you putting out, you know, the consistent movies every year? Hey, and uh, this, is, this to me is unsexy, but the, the secret to all of this is low overhead. 
Like the thing that drives people, and I always tell this to friends here in Los Angeles, it's not a lack of talent that drives you out of this industry. It's a lack of being able to financially stay alive. And you have to be able to, and especially right now, basically since 2008, the DVD market dropped out. And so it's unbelievably hard to really evaluate what a film is worth right now and in the independent world. And so what is important on all of this is you have to be able to keep hitting singles and doubles and you have to keep making films. You can't sit around for two or three years not making something but you have to be able to sit there and say, okay, you know, we made a movie, we've covered our overhead, we can stay alive for another year. Let's just, you know, you keep staying alive and you keep making films and you have to have that ability to let lightning strike at some point. Hold on on, on that thought for just for just a second. Is, yeah. is, is the making the movie, the, the, the equation, your algebraic equation there for making the movie, your cost of the movie to the, you know, the sales that that movie is going to generate, is, is that the fact and being able to keep yourself going. So you keep making a single or a double knowing that that movie is going to make X amount of dollars and that amount of dollars is what's going to keep you going the next year. Is, is that the thinking? Yeah. And, but here's the thing though. You have to make sure that the low end is that it'll be a single or a double. Do you know what I'm saying? Instead like, of zero. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have a strikeout. Right. You know what I'm saying? And sorry for all the sports analogies on this no, one. No, it, uh, it, but, it, it's great, but that's but that's actually a really important point is how do you hit even – how do you even get to, 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 to make a single? Because yeah. as you know, there are so many people out there doing – and I mean you're specifically in that uh, drama character-driven type of – uh, I guess you could say, you know, space, which is very different right. than, of course, being in, I'm going to make, you know, uh, this passion, you know, indie drama, which is really difficult to hit a single in at all, let right. alone a double or triple. Um, but you seem to be in a very specific but I niche. Think so I, uh, at the end of the day, yeah. you, have to head, you have to hedge your bet. You know, we had a... You know, we had a, a film at Toronto this past year that, you know, as we're speaking right now, we're finalizing the domestic distribution deal. And we've been working on that for two months now. Uh, but it's one of these things that the movie is about a teen love triangle, about two kids going away to college and the third one staying in their hometown. And, you know, it's the end of this friendship. But we put it in a heist film. You know what I'm saying? Like, at the end of the day, which I, I you have to remember, you're making this for other people. Now you should make these things for yourself in that like you are you are enjoying them. But you know, I the old dean of AFI, Sam Grog, once told me is like if you want to be a true artist, you should be making poetry in your head and never writing it down. And he goes, Then you're a true artist. But if you're putting something out there for other people to watch, you're making art for them. You know, you wanna entertain people or you wanna scare them or you wanna draw them into something. But you have to remember you want to make people see this and you have to give them a reason to go see this. I always use uh, The Town by Ben Affleck as an amazing example of, you know, for whatever you think of him or whatever you think of that movie, the poster on that film is still nuns with machine guns, you know. And at the end of the day, that's like a two and a half hour film. There's three heists in it. I would say all three are not the most complicated heists in the world. You've got two hours worth of drama of a guy from the wrong side of the tracks trying to romance a girl that he can't date, that's a character-driven film, and they've hidden it inside of a heist film. You know, great, great, great analogy. And, yeah, and great film too. But, but yeah, great, great analogy. They've, they've given they've given my dad a reason to actually give the film a chance, 
And then my dad walks away from a film like that going, hey, that wasn't actually bad. And you're like, of course it was. It was actually a good film hidden inside of the crap that you think you actually like. You know, and it's one of those things that you want to try to make films that are entertaining in some sort of fashion that gives them, you got to come up with films with a hook. You know, if you're making an independent film, you have to give them something that the studio system is not going to give them. There's a reason that like Memento worked, you know, you're giving them something that's cool and interesting. It's still a noir, you know, that's at the end of the day, it's a hard boiled noir. We know that template. I don't know. If, do you know who Ronnie Ronnie Cox? Great actor. I loved him because he's the bad. He's the, he's always the corporate asshole in the eighties, where he played like uh, Cohagen in Total Recall, or he played Dick Jones in RoboCop. But you know, he's also the guy that got in the banjo duo in uh, Duel in uh, Deliverance. Amazing actor. He and I were talking, and he told me he said, Brian, the magic ratio is eighty twenty. You have to make a movie that's eighty percent familiar and twenty percent unique. If you go either way on that scale, you alienate the audience. If it's too familiar, we've seen this too many times and I'm bored with it. If it's too unique, it goes to too much of a niche audience and you'll never get it out to enough people to make sense. So you have to give them something that is standard, but then you have a unique aspect to it. And even some of the most, you know, I think brilliant independent films from the last year still kind of fit in that. I would say Upstream Color last year is a really kind of standard you know, two people in trouble, like people on the run, paranoia. It, it, it's not like breaking the mold out of cinema that it's it's all straightforward. And you, but then it's got a uniqueness to it that makes it stand out. You know, I think a lot of these bellflower at the end of the day for all its flamethrowers and muscle cars and everything like that. It's about heartbreak. You know, we know what that story is. We know about the guy who gets his heart broken by the girl. It's just that, you know, they put a 20 percent in there that really makes it intriguing. I hope that makes sense. I might just be rambling a little too much there. No, no, no. It's actually uh, – I've never heard the way Ronnie put it um, you know, exactly, but the way I, I've heard that same sentiment, although n- not necessarily applied to film, but you can only change somebody 20%. You can only push them right. 20% out of their comfort zone before they go, ah, I don't want that anymore. So right. I, I definitely hear what you're saying, and I agree. I, th- I think that's great. Uh, the, although what comes to mind now then is when you're when you're acid testing your movies when you're deciding uh, you know I don't know you've, you've got 10 20 I don't, I don't know how many movies you have in development at any one time uh, how many movies do you have in development at any well one time? I, I will say this we're we're a little bit of a unique breed in that you know it, it's one of the, my background is in business strategy and the way that I realize I don't know this goes back into almost like Billy Bean's Moneyball which I have a buddy who is uh, works in the Atlanta Falcons front office and they work on this stuff all the time and I know that Moneyball has kind of brought this stuff to the forefront but it's true on how do you compete in an unfair marketplace and that's where we are. We are small-time producers. We are just trying to grind out, you know, a film or so a year that is of quality, that is something that we're proud of, that can still financially make sense. But I can't go through the normal channels. If you think of a movie like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or The Play, where, you know, there's the shit leads with Patel in the stack, and then there's a safe that has the Glenn Gary leads, you know, I'm in the level as a professional that I'm still with the Patels. If I go to the agencies and they're giving me scripts, it's bad ones. It's ones that have been passed over by producers who are more powerful than me. You know, the Scott Rudens of this world or more successful producers, they get the Glenn Gary leads. So if I'm going to get Patel, 
I've got to go somewhere different. I cannot go there. And the old analogy is, you know, if you're getting bad fruit from the barrel, you got to raise a tree. And that's basically what we did here in this Hughes office. So we spent the last five years growing a fruit tree. Like we have an office here that we, I think at this point we have 48 or 49 keys to this place given away. You know, as I'm talking to you right now over Skype. Oh, are you still on? Still here. That's just okay. uh a thing Skype does, but go ahead. No problem. Every, you know, as I'm talking to you right here and I'm waving to them, we've got three writers in the office, all three working on completely different things for themselves, not even for us. And we open up this place for writers to, you know, it's an open forum for artists to hang out and work. And guess what? When you hang out here long enough, people start, you know, we pitch ideas to writers that hang out here and writers pitch things back to us. And what we try to do is we try to squash things early in the process because the hardest thing is killing a project after you put a year into developing it. You know, so we have to get the elements up front and then we have to do a real evaluation on this stuff early saying, you know, what are is this 80/20? Who does this sell to? You know, what are the comparables? And it doesn't have to be an apples to apples comparable, but you know, what did, if this movie went to Sundance last year, how would it have done? Honestly, not with like rosy glasses on, like what could we have made for this film? Like, can this film be made for that budget? And you try to do that stuff early. And I think writers very much appreciate it that instead of handing you a completed script and then you're trying to, you know, change it intrinsically until all of a sudden it just kind of fizzles out and loses its spark. It's easier a week into talking about an idea going, you know what, man, it's just not going to work. Let's come up with another idea, you know? And then you just kind of curb it. Maybe it'll make sense at a future date. But, you know, I would say we have five or six projects going on right now, but all of them have had to really arduously pass a test before a word was ever written on them. Now, as part part of that process, are you taking uh, these projects that pass your internal asset test, are you taking them out and talking to uh, either distributors or sales agents and getting their perspective and take on the material before you begin uh, developing it further, or even once you have a project that has been developed into a script, are you are you actively engaged with the market to get their to get its feedback? Yeah, we and you know at first I think we were trying to keep everything really under wraps to do some sort of like J.J. Abrams shit where you're really trying to surprise somebody out of nowhere. But I think now that the the margins are so small, like you have to get people's input, and then also you have to remember that you have to kind of believe yourself too that. When you ask somebody for their feedback on stuff, usually that feedback is going to come in negative, no matter what. If I have a cut of a film and I ask people for notes, I've never sat down and had everyone come back being, it's perfect, man, lock picture. Like when you ask somebody for notes, they're going to give you notes. You know, they go in with their thinking hat on. It's the same way with evaluating a project. You know, everyone's going to come back and say, well, you know, if you got like an A-list actor, you'd be okay. Well, of course that's true. You know, like, so it is, you have to take everybody's notes and feedback and then you have to sit there and kind of weigh things. And this only comes from getting your ass kicked. You know, that that's the biggest thing in this world is you have to get out there, you have to get burned, you have to be able to get back up after you've been beat down. And what that goes back to my overhead thing. If you keep your overhead low enough, you can get back up and keep fighting, you know? If you, you know, if you lose all the money you have on one big bet, then there is no way to get back up and keep fighting. So, you know, it's being responsible and really keeping these things under wraps and trying to do something, 
you know, it's tough. It's that, it's that balance. You want to do something that people understand and can, uh, you know, digest, but at the same time, it's got to be unique and new. So yeah, man, if we were smart, we wouldn't be in this industry, but you know, it's something that, you know, you want to try to somehow make this passion, you know, worthwhile. Yeah, well, what I normally say is when somebody asks me about the business, I say no, get out, and you have somebody has to be willing to hear the word you know no a hundred yeah. times and still be willing to do it because it's you know it's an insane business. Yeah, a hundred percent. I agree with you a hundred percent. So let's talk financing for just a second. Now I'm, I'm sure. going gonna, gonna to open up a door here, and you're free to walk through you know uh, as much or as little of it as you like. Sure. But when it comes to financing the movies that you have put together and the ones that you're currently working on. Uh, how do you think about financing? Where do you go for your financing? What is your strategy around financing your movies? As specific as you care to be, you know, just 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 dive into this one. Yeah, and look, I can talk about myself, and I can also just talk about how the majority of independent film works. Uh, you know, there are different ways that you can do this. It just depends how you want to cut up that pie. Uh, for ourselves, you know, we keep these budgets low enough and I have a, you know, we have a track record enough of movies that have made money. You can, you can stitch together ourselves. We try to do as much as we can in house of anything. We can stitch together financing because I have a track record enough to say, look, you know, we have made movies at X, they can return Y, here's what the risks are, here's what the reward is, you know, let's keep going. And luckily, you know, we've worked with the same people over and over and so it keeps... It keeps working that way. I would I would guess ninety percent of legitimate independent film, in what you and I would probably consider independent film, is privately financed. Whether it be by you have friends with money, you have relatives with money, you have uh, you know somebody who owns you know public storage lockers and is sick of that because it's not sexy enough and they want to invest in film. You know though that is where most of this comes from. Corporate America would get the hell away from most of this because it is really bad and it's, you know, public storage would be a great thing to go put your money in. You know, it's, it's solid. It it brings back a revenue every month. You can calculate that stuff. This is a higher risk thing. And so with any higher risk, you know, investment, you need people that are willing to risk at a higher level. Uh, You know, you can also, if you have good enough projects, you can go to the agencies and they have, you know, deep pocket people that they work with to package things together, you know, but you, you know, whatever you shop out, you have to pay for, you know, if you want to go through an agency to package something, you're going to give away percentages of this, you know? And so you have to sit there and look at these things. It depends what level you're on. If you're doing a large project, you know, it might be worth it to bring in somebody to take a cut because you're still going to have enough of a profit margin to make sense, you know, if you're making a micro budget film and then you're giving away the project to somebody else, you know, you're putting in two, three years of your life for what, you know, can you stay alive? So I guess it gets back to the low overhead thing. You know, you have to keep your expenses low and you have to keep, you know, I drive a a freaking Honda, man. Like I, you gotta like things that don't make sense. You gotta get out of your life. I have a car that'll last me hopefully 200,000 miles and I won't have to invest in a car for another 10 years. You know, you, you just got to check that stuff at the door, the the overhead stuff that's going to kill you. I love it. I love it. I, and, and, and this is coming from the guy who still drives a 1996 Subaru Legacy. Yeah, no. So you're in the same boat. It's, you know, what do you love and how much are you willing to do for it? You know, it's the, uh, 
you know, Sean Connery and uh, Untouchables. Like, what are you prepared to do? Right. You know, and I, I when I was in when I was in grad school, I had a classmate who was, you know, Harvard educated, very well to do. And she asked a question to a manager who came in to talk to us and said to the manager, like, look, I have cell phone bills. I have a car payment. I have all this stuff, whatever, $28,000 a year as an assistant. I can't make that work. And he just coldly looked at her and said, well, somebody will. And it just depends how badly you want to do this. You know, what are you willing to give up to do this? You know, do you not always have to have the newest iPhone or things of that nature? Or... You have to sit there and say, look, I need these things. I got to lower my standards on what the quality of my film is. Like, I unfortunately really like to make what I call wolf in sheep's clothing films. I like to make art house films hidden inside of genres. I can't go make a bunch of straight to video Stone Cold Steve Austin films, you know, and those would probably pay a lot better. And that would be a lot more straightforward. And I'm like, well, I don't care about theatrical. I just want to take these straight to video. I know he's got an audience. We can do them. You know, it's an algebra equation. Unfortunately, I'm a slave to trying to make something that I think is a little bit higher brow. And for that, I have to sit there and say, look, I got to give up the comfort of those other things. I, th- I think that's all really great and well said, too. Uh, I, I, let me shift shift gears for just a minute just because we're, we're, we're getting close to the end of this podcast. And, and I like to end on sort of a social media front, which is tell me about your perspective about uh, indie filmmaking and social media and, and how those, you know, those those pieces of the puzzle fit together in, in, in this world that we now live in. I mean, look, the the social media aspect, it's going to continually change, and it's almost impossible to put your stake in the ground on something. I mean, even look at Kickstarter for a, for a starter. A year ago, it's totally different than how it is seen now. I don't know about you. I dread any time I open up my email and see another Kickstarter email from another friend at this point, whereas a year ago, it wasn't as bad. you know. Right. And, and so things will change. Social media is the same way. But also, look, when I first came to L.A. 10 years ago, all of us went to a theater called the Sunset Five out on Sunset, and it was where all the independent films played, and you always went on Friday nights, and there was always people there, and it was you know a full house to see whatever, The Last King of Scotland, or you'd see you know a documentary or something like that. It's changed. People aren't going to the theater to go see these independent films. You know, It's a disaster last year you know, was oscilloscope and it played a couple theaters. And like, I'm sure that couple theater thing is going to get phased out in a couple years where it's just going to be, Hey, I made an independent film and now it's on Netflix instant immediately. Social media is going to be your, your lifeblood. It's the new billboard. You know, it's the new way to put up flyers. It's, you know, and it will change. Facebook will at some point go out of fashion you know, like any sort of fad and there'll be something new to take its place. It's essential. I just think it's, you have to adapt with the times, you know, you have to understand how things are changing, how people consume things and then get it out there. Once again, like I said before, you make these things for other people, you know, if where people get their information is on Facebook, then you better be on Facebook. If you want people to look at your film, you just can't be stubborn about this stuff. You have to sit there and say, I made a movie for people to see. Where are the people? Oh, the pa- the people are on Twitter? I need to be on Twitter too then. Are you spending any time you know, in advance of your movies getting out there as early as a year or even two years before uh, the movies that you have coming out uh, developing 
a social media audience for a specific film or, or how early in the process are you, you know, yeah, thinking I, about that? I think, look, and I, and as much as everyone probably hates all these things, you have to have, a, you have to have a brand. You have to be known as something that you are known as, you know, we did, I had interns last summer, they're all early twenties and I had them do a research project on their own generation. And this is the first generation that sees themselves as brands that their, their true, like their perception of themselves is completely dictated on how they perceive others see them rather than, you know, how you think of yourself. It's truly the validation you get on how other people think of it. And you better understand that about people. And so I think you have to not only make awareness for your projects, you have to make awareness of the type of things you do, you know, and this is not new. I mean, Steven Spielberg has always been a brand, you know, Stanley Kubrick was a brand, you know, Roger Corman is a brand. And that's why I was saying about like the Stone Cold Steve Austin, like God bless him. I listen to Stone Cold's podcast. He sounds awesome. But, like, he's a brand, and he knows what he is, and those movies that went straight to video with Stone Cold, I think they did, like, nine in a year, know exactly what they are, and they live within that. So I think it's important to know what you want to be and to try to put yourself out there and stay out there in people's eyes as, hey, that's Brian Yudovich. He does character-driven genre stuff. He doesn't do big studio stuff. He doesn't do small art house stuff. He does, you know, you would like to be known. And at some point, I think I will have a let the right one in level quality film that will be known as your brand, you know, and I will die happy with that. There's no real immortality on this. I'm really happy to be a father and raising my two kids, but I really love making films. And I like that, you know, people in my profession and people who like films, you know, know the brand I am and enjoy that kind of film. Brian, that, that's fantastic. Uh, I think that's a great note to end on. Just want to thank you again for coming out and being a part of the show this week. And uh, let people know how they can connect with you if they so choose. Great. It's Brian Udovich, B-R-I-N-U-D-O-V-I-C-H. And you can find me very easily on Facebook or Twitter or any of those outlets all under the name Brian Udovich. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. All right. Take care. Thank you very much.